Peace. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. I'm your host, Anefriesian. And I have two quick favors to ask. Please subscribe to this podcast. And if you're on Instagram, please go on over and give us a follow at Bootstraps Podcast. Today is a great conversation about the proverbial chip on the shoulder that often occurs for black boys. Black boys tend to recognize at a young age that they've been given a harder road to travel than the rest of society. And inevitably, that leads to frustration and anger. It's an anger that's with you and it becomes almost pervasive or ever-present. But anger can be a good thing, especially when you're angry about an injustice. And more importantly, when you're able to convert that anger into fuel to achieve your goals and make it serve you, then that anger is a good thing. And it's not about trying to prove something to the world. Because if you if that becomes your end motivation, then there's a good chance that that anger can become destructive. But if you turn it into fuel to achieve your goals out of love for yourself and out of love for your loved ones, then that anger can serve you and help right the wrong that you had nothing to do with creating in the first place. Like I said, today's a great conversation. Let's get into it. Yo, peace everybody. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. Brother, why don't you tell everybody what your name is and what it is that you do? Hey everyone, it's Kevin Williams. Um, so currently I work for a company called CRH. Um, we're the we're largest building materials company um, in, in the world. Um, and so what's that mean? We, a lot of the buildings you work in, um, homes you live in, um, you know, our products or our materials um, are instrumental in making those. Uh, and so I'm, a, I'm within our procurement organization. And so our North American group um, North American organization of our business is broken up through different divisions, and I, I look after procurement for one of those three divisions. Oh wow! Sorry. So, so there's like, I always try and break this down in a simple terms. So there's like materials for buildings. Like, okay, people go to Home Depot because they want to build like their deck. You procure materials for when a company wants to build a whole building. Well. <laughs> And again, we, we don't we don't build the whole buildings, um, but you know, so we, we build the roads that people drive on. Um, okay. Uh, you know, we have a a piece of business that provides you know, the glass, hardware, things of that nature for a lot of the buildings, um, you know, high rise buildings that are built. Uh, we are also in the the residential space, um, so a lot of the things within your home. Um, or either the materials that we provided to help build your home or, um, or some of the products, glass, windows, things of that nature that we've, uh, we've provided to also go into your home. Wow. And then so as uh, the VP of procurement, you're the one to make sure that, every, that you guys have enough material for all of your building projects. Is that correct? At a high level, um, that, that's a fair statement, yes. Wow. Right. Yeah. So we've got to make sure we've got the right things, the right time, obviously at the right price. 
uh, you know, responsible for developing and, and maintaining strategic relationships with certain vendors. Uh, so yeah, that's yeah. How did how did you how did you end up you know in that? Because I mean, I I know a little bit like you being a knucklehead from Inglewood, California. How did <laughs> how, how do you end up you know in this in this role? Like what um, what were you doing like immediately before this job? Um, so directly before this, I was with BASF um, Chemical Company. Uh, and so I, I joined BASF after Michigan um, in their kind of general management program. Um, and essentially because I, you know, I, that's my, my career path that I want to go down is general management and eventually running a business one day. Um, so did that. Um, once I did that, I, or once I finished that program, I, I, I went into, uh, I managed a procurement team. Um, at BASF, um, and then ultimately left BASF for the position I have now. I um, mean, been been with the company for about three years on the dot. Right, right. So, yeah, matter of fact, yeah, that would that would make sense. And so, here's the thing I remember about BASF: like growing up, like I never really fully understood what BAS, BASF did. I just remember their commercial the tapes. Yeah, and it's like yeah. well, they had they had the tapes for sure, and then they had, there was this commercial where it's like. We don't make a lot of things you buy. We make a lot of things you buy better. And right, so right. I remember that, which also speaks to how much time I spent watching TV as a kid, which is a whole other topic. But <laughs> <laughs> like I never knew anything about BASF. And so you and work there. Like, what is BASF's business exactly? Yeah, so it's a chemical company. Um, and I mean, they make every, or they don't necessarily make, but they provide the chemicals. Um, they go into everything from the you know, the car on your or the paints on your car to the you know the I, you remember back in the day um, how dashboards on on cars would yeah. crack and break <laughs> um, absolutely yeah and so you know the the fix of that was that BSF and companies similar to BSF provided the chemicals that pr- provide you know created a protective coating on that and so that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> um, so that you know, they're in agriculture and pesticides and herbicides. I mean, they're they're all over the place. They touch just about everything. It's a huge, huge company that touches just about everything. Right. Okay. Because like, I, I mean, you talking about uh, dashboards that crack? Like, I don't remember my mama having a car that didn't have a cracked dashboard. Right. <laughs> you, know, you, you, don't, you don't see that anymore. It doesn't right. Anymore. Yeah. Right. Right. So that, all right, dope, man. That's that's uh, that's cool. And like, where where are you? Where are you currently located now, like in, yep. in the country? Yeah, so so live in Tampa, Florida. Live in Tampa, Florida, here with the family. You know, obviously, you know, as you know, but married with with twin boys that just turned four about a month ago. Uh, so yeah, we it's life is life is good for us. With, <laughs> or, you know, we have no complaints about our our personal situation. Yeah, our. our uh, you and wife, you dealing with so twin boys? Is there they're four now? So how, how, how different is it at four versus, say, two? <laughs> Completely different. Uh, I, different. Different, but also there, there are a lot of similarities. But uh, they're just so much more independent, you know. They, they're able to communicate so much more effectively. Uh, but then with that, they've also, you know, they're, 
they're go they're co they're going into themselves and they've got their own personalities and you know there's <laughs> there are other challenges that come with that <laughs> with so, their with but, their ability to communicate right <laughs> right you know that that no word uh, right right uh, but you know so they you know they're understanding the the effectiveness of communication and um, you know how to communicate you know they don't always choose the most effective way but uh, we're we're working on that. Yeah. So, <laughs> and how how do you think about I, this? Is one thing I always find interesting for our journey as black men, especially how we were raised, right, with that very strict upbringing. Um, yeah. And it was that up, that strict upbringing was necessary to try and you know instill in us the discipline so we could have a chance of being safe in this world. But how do you how do you manage that? you know, now that you're raising your own boys? Um, how, do, how do I manage the discipline? Well, I mean, yeah. Well, yeah, so, so number one, you know, the, the environment that my kids are growing up in is, is a completely different environment than, than what I grew up in. Um, and, and that said, I don't think that the, some of the, the discipline that was uh, instilled in me in certain methods is necessary for my kids, um, right? Not just because of a different environment, but I, you know, I, I just think as a society, as people, we've evolved. Um, but uh, that that said, I'm I'm I mean, you know me, I'm I'm big on discipline, um, <laughs> right? And and so you know, one thing that I, I continuously communicate to them is that you know, I'm a person of my word. So if if I tell you not to do something and then I ask you again and if I tell you again not to do something or X is going to occur the next time you do it X occurs I follow <laughs> up on my word <laughs> right I follow up on my word right so um, I can see your yeah. face right now saying that <laughs> right and it's you know whether whether it be taking a taking away a toy or whatever it is um, I, I follow up my word so that they get the sense that when daddy says something, he means it. Right. I mean, I think that's, that's dope though, to like in one generation be in a situation where you are now raising your boys to where they're not having to deal with all the things you have to deal with. You know what I mean? That's a, that's a pretty, it's a pretty big leap. Matter of fact, let's, let's, let's get into that a little bit. Let's, let's it, it is. Oh, it is, and I—it's something I always dreamed about, you know. That I, but I, 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 I didn't always know it was going to occur, right? Like, but that is—that is the dream to make sure that the next generation, then you had it. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's let's get into like you know like I mentioned you were from Inglewood. Um, a matter of fact, I know we were born at the same hospital in Harbor City. Um, what I was, I was, I, I was taking, I was taking away in a vehicle. You were taking away in a, a horse. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if automobiles were quite invented when you were. <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody, nobody asked you for your slander and degradation. <laughs> no, nah, but we, we can get back to it. What, what were you saying though? <laughs> right. <laughs> Hater. But, uh, yeah, so you bordered raised, you know, in in LA, uh, in, in Inglewood for the first chunk of your life, like 
talk us through a little bit what it was like for you growing up. Like, what was your family situation? What was it like in your neighborhood? Yeah. Um, so this is this is Inglewood during the, the, the 80s and up to, I probably moved out of Inglewood in 97, 96. So wow. all the way through the mid the mid nineties, right? So I mean, it was the 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 height of gang activity, um, you know, in Los Angeles. Uh, I mean, you know, we were right there at ground zero of it all. Um, and and so my my family situation, it was just I'm an only child. Um, it was just my mom and I. Yeah. Uh, my 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 father was never around. Um, that my parents got were separated at a very I was at a very very young age and. Um, yeah, for whatever reason, uh, he made the decision to not be to choose to not be a part of my life. Yeah. Um, and so it was, it was my mom and I, uh, man, you know, it, it was a I it was a tall task. You know, her trying to raise a, uh, you know, trying to raise me in inner city Los Angeles at that point in time with all the, the different things going on in the community and all the different influences, um, you know, and she's. Yeah, you know, there's all this inertia pulling me one way, and she's trying to create positive momentum, moving in another direction. It was a tall task. Uh, right. I, I, I tip my hat to her. Tip my hat to her. Uh, yeah, for folks who don't, um, who don't know firsthand what LA was like in that era, you know, the mid '80s to the mid '90s. Basically, if you listen to hip hop from that era. By and large, it's pretty accurate. So at some point, it started to be like fantasized and just too over the top. But you look at the, the stuff that NWA was rapping about, Cube, right. MCA, Snoop when he first dropped, Death Row, like all of that stuff from you know the mid '80s to the mid '90s. It was it was pretty accurate. It's almost like news reported, for right. lack of a better term. You know, I, I and you talk about like your mom trying to create positive momentum. I just remember. Uh, this one kid, Luis, I went to school with. And Luis wasn't really a tough dude, but you know, he wanted to he wanted to get the like it was important to have like hood cred, you know, or or, or roll with cats who had a reputation um during this gangbanging era. And I just remember looking at him like, Dog, you ain't cut out for this. And he was walking home. We're in seventh grade. He was walking home with the wrong dudes one day. And one of the cats um, that he was walking home with, like thought they were tough and they really weren't. And some dudes who were really gang affiliated hopped out, rolled up on them, and they got into a fight. And I just remember they got beat down so bad. I remember Luis, he was gone from school for like a month because he had got his four fronts like knocked out. Mm-hmm. And he just simply decided to like, in third period, he decided to make friends with the wrong dudes because he was trying to feel like hard and tough and really didn't understand the consequences. Like very simple decisions could lead to like life altering um, experiences. Yep. So what what was what was that like for you in in Inglewood? Yeah, I mean, you know, at that time, Inglewood was uh, like you said. I mean, you turn on Boys in the Hood. Men's society, you know, some of the music you already mentioned, it's like that stuff was that was real life. That was real life, right? And so, um, you know, now if I remember, I remember growing up in Inglewood, I remember hearing gunshots down the street at nighttime and 
crawling under my bed and sleeping under my bed. You know, because I'm just, I don't know, I'm third, fourth grade. I don't know what's going on. I, there's a helicopter flying above. Like, literally, like, it's flying around. And, you know, every 30 seconds, this light shines through my bedroom door, you know. Like, all the houses had bars on the windows. Right. Um, you know, two doors, that metal door. Uh, <laughs> I know you know what I'm talking about. You couldn't see through. Yeah. Um, but, but then also, you know, just every day playing outside. Um, you know, I had a group of friends that lived on my block. Um, just just playing outside, you know, I multiple people on my block that were gang affiliated, you know, and there were multiple times I was threatened that, you know, if I didn't join a certain gang that uh, they were going to break into my house or, you know, they were going to kidnap me or this and that was going to happen. They were going to take my bike. And so there was just all this, this, yeah negative momentum um, trying to pull me um, in the wrong direction. Um, and it, it, it was around me all the time. Um, you know, it was, it was just negative momentum trying to pull me in the wrong direction. Right. So, um, I mean, what, what, what was the, what was the key to like pull you in the right direction? Because I know <clears throat> it, it can't just be a lecture, right? Cause black mama's, you know, they've been not even just all hood mamas, but, you know, right. black mamas are the, they're the master of the lecture because they 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 black mothers have been they they carry like the the oral tradition. And like they just they, <laughs> they, they carry they carry it in they in they body, though, like just like the lived experience of being black in this country. Mm-hmm. And so they all give they all give the lecture. Right. But like. What was it that uniquely happened for you to create some positive momentum? Yeah, so it was, it was a few different things. Um, so, so number one, you know, I again, no, no father, um, and so my mom, my mom created a village around me, a village of people. You know, her friends, um, you know, my uncle Sherman, um, but she created this village of people around me that continued to feed, you know positive energy um, into me and, and, you know, really took, invested their time into my success. Um, So there was that. Uh, Second thing, my mom was, uh, I, from a, from a very young age, my mom always instilled this, this fear into me of doing something that would embarrass my family. Mm. Um, And, and so, like that, like I, I lived that. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. And so it, it like I, I, I truly lived that. And so, you know, I anything that I thought that, you know, if I make this decision, will it have the the potential to embarrass my family sometime down the road? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that really that really drove my thought paths. Um third thing I would say is that my mom was very cautious of who I hung out with. Um, and, and so she was, she was trying to be very cautious about that to make sure, you know, try to minimize the amount of negative influence. Um, and then the last thing, and it is, you know, I don't, I say it last, but it's, it's no small thing, but, you know, I went to school out in Westchester, right? So I went to, I went to a private school on the other side of town. Mm. Um, and, and I mean, that created a, another set of challenges for me personally, um, but 
I went to a private school, the other side of town. You know, people took at my school, people took class seriously, took education seriously. And and so, you know, that helped wire my brain um, towards you know, being serious about academics. Right. I think that's that's super important. It also like that's a that's a complicated factor though in like getting you into a quote unquote better school, which from a pure academic standpoint it absolutely was better. Right. But then socially it produces all of Absolutely these <laughs> other issues. Like it it's I was having a conversation the other day with uh, this brother who um we were having a conversation in passing, but uh, he might have actually ended up being a guest on the show. But he was talking about how, you know, he actually grew up in the suburbs. Um, and his parents thought that, you know, they had made it. But then that brought about his, his own bit of hell, you know, because he was the only black kid. Yep. Like in his neighborhood. And he didn't like caught all of this hell from just like being insulted and whatever, whatever, on a regular basis. So what was that like for you going to school over in Westchester? Yeah, so, um, you know, for, for those that aren't familiar with the you know, Los Angeles, um, again, Eaglewood, inner city Los Angeles, Westchester is over um, close to, by, next to LAX, um, close to the beach. And so it was a, it was a stark difference. So the, the kids I went to school with uh, didn't look like me, didn't live by me, um, had both parents and were much more fluent than I was. Um, and, and so what he created, it was, it, you know, you, you call me K-Dub, right? So I'd go home and I'd play with my, the, 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 the kids on the street. And, you know, I was K-Dub. And I would go to school every day and I was Kevin. Mm. And, you know, I, I would go to school every day and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to say right now, I'm, I'm clearly not saying that the kids I went to school with were racist in, in any form or fashion. Um, but, you know, the little kids, they just didn't understand. And, and neither did I, but they would, you know, well, Kevin, why don't you, why don't you live by us? Right. You know, like, Kevin, why don't, why doesn't your, why doesn't your dad ever pick you up? Right. Right, like all these, all these little questions, like Kevin, why, why couldn't you come over and play on Saturday, right? And and for me, it's like, well, I don't know, like how how am I? I'm, right, I'm the third grade. Like how am I supposed to answer those questions? You know, I I don't know. I mean, I I, I do know, but like that hits that hits me at my core. Right. You know, like I understand my father's not around. I understand he's choosing not to be a part of my life. Uh, but like, how am I, I'm in the third grade. How am I supposed to communicate that to you? Right, right, right. And, and so, you know, man, it, it, it created this, this, this weird dynamic for me um, to the point to where it was like, you know, enough, like I, every day, for example, every day I'd go to put on my pants. Okay. Like no, no joke. I'd go to put on my pants and, you know, I'm a kid. I play hard, fall down, scrape my knee, yeah, get a hole in my pants. My mom would just patch your pants up. Which, right. looking back, I, I think that's the right decision. I would do the same thing. Okay? Right. The, the kids that I went to school with, their kids just their parents just go them buy them a new pair of pants. Oh, you're right, right, okay? right. And and 
my mom didn't patch the pants up because she couldn't afford not to buy us a new pair, not to buy a new pair of pants. She just thought it was like, okay, you're just gonna fall down and create another hole. So, you know. Right. But for me, it was putting on my pants, and it's I feel that patch on my knee. It's like, oh, right. here we go again. Here we right, go again. Right? right. Like I'm putting on my shoes, putting on my my LA gears or whatever they were. Right. And well, they aren't Jordans. <laughs> you know, right. like, no, but seriously, right? Because right? that's what everyone wore, right? And you know, I go to get dropped off, and I'm getting dropped off in the station wagon, and like the people to the left and right of me, a Lexus and a Mercedes, like, right? Like it, for me, it was just everywhere, right? And so, um, it, it it just created this situation where I was, you know, I I, I never I never felt a hundred percent right. Um, and it, it, you know, it started to, it started to fester in me, right? I mean, it, I didn't, I didn't understand how to, to funnel um, some of this kind of negative energy that I was feeling. Uh, you know, certain times where I was on the playground and you know, back in elementary school, I was about the biggest kid and I would just get aggressive. Yep. <laughs> just run through people. Right? You know, I just, <laughs> but I was, I would just, frustrating and angry and I didn't like I didn't know what to do with that energy right I wasn't was funneling it in the right place um so yeah and I would you know I would go home and, and play with all the kids you know at home and it was like man but these aren't any the kids I go to school with yeah that's uh, that's real so I I mean I so I had uh I had a hot I guess had I still have but I have I'm a mature adult that knows how to manage my emotions now, but I have a, I have a temper, you know, and I remember as a kid, all this, that perpetual, I remember moms picking me up in her whip and it was like, mom's car would be like, we in the hood and her car would be worse than other people's in the hood. And I was like, you know, <laughs> damn, <laughs> I'll meet you down the street, you know, or whatever. And she was like, heck no. Like my mom was like the mayor of my neighborhood. Everybody knew her, like literally. So, I just could never get away from that. Or, you know, I remember going, I remember distinctly the day in second grade, like my big toe sticking out my shoes, just looking like a straight pumpkin, you know, (laughs) and I was getting, I was getting roasted. Um, And it's like, it's hard to, when you're that young to like deal with that and still try and be somewhat productive or constructive. And sometimes, you know, my temper would, bubble over. I remember um, you know, may he rest in peace, you know, homie from the hood who who later in life uh you know, he chose a different path than I did and he ended up getting popped um in some gang activity, whatever, got shot. But I remember getting into it with him, like he had just like popped off and one day like I was just I remember just feeling like I was just so damn mad. Mm-hmm. And so we was we was at the, on the uh, handball court, and he had to catch them hands. You know what I mean? And it was, and I remember when the principal came and broke it up, and was like, "I'm so disappointed in you," you know, because I was always, I was always a good student too. And I was like, "I didn't care." Like I I literally, you know, I was in what third fourth grade, and I could not care any less. Yeah. What the principal had to say, I was like, he needed to get his butt whooped. Like that was the level of like anger that was just yeah. flowing through my body, the aggression. And I was like, I, I did it. It was like, yeah, and? Yep. 
you know, so, um, but yeah. something that, you know, go ahead. No, I would say, you know, like, even looking back, you know, the, the, the Rodney King riots, um, you know, I, like, there were, there were literally stores being looted two blocks away from our front door. Right. right. Looted and burned down. There were people standing on corners making sure that the cars driving through, there, there were black people in the car. Like, that, that happened two blocks outside of my front door. Right. right. But, but the kids I went to school with, the Rodney King riots was something they saw on television. Right. For me, like, I lived through it, and I was going to live through it. Like, I still bear the consequences of the Rodney King riots years later because the community didn't just come back to what it was. Yeah, that's real. Right. So, but, so I, it created this, this, this weird, um, you know, contrast for me. Um, and, you know, one of the, one of the, the def- as, as I look back, one of the kind of defining uh, kind of moments for me was uh, I, I had this teacher. Her name was, um, her name was Miss Nagasaki. Little, little Japanese lady. She couldn't have been taller than four foot ten. So I just towered over her. Um, but man, she, I don't, she, so number one, she, she really showed me that she cared. She yep. cared about me as a person. Um, and so because of that, she was able to grab my attention like no other. Mm. Um, and, and she sat me down. She, she, she under, she, she witnessed and understood kind of what I was going through and like the challenges I was facing. And, and she sat me down and told me one day, she, you know, she, you know, growing up, she, um, she, her and her family had actually been put in the Japanese internment camps during mm. World War II. Yeah. Right. So she shared she shared some of that that you know she shared that story with me and then kind of what occurred with her afterwards. Um and you know her path to getting to where she was, right? And it was, you know, hey, yeah, Kevin, you're you are different. Okay. And but that's okay. In fact, you're unique. You're special. Mm. Right. So so take this energy and Show everyone how special you are. Show everyone how you. And, and so for me, that was kind of you know, and, and seeing her and the time she put in to to really, you know, and kind of getting me because I, I was a knucklehead for a while. Um, was and, and, <laughs> and, and, and literally after that, like you know, I I I, I took off. I took off. Um, wow, that's that's a that's super powerful like just like one what it what it means to truly like see a kid particularly a black kid because our thing is we we don't get seen right everyone always comes at us from like their own particular perspective that has all of these biases that are anti our lived experience even though they don't or i guess they're anti the expressions of black culture without understanding where those expressions come from right you know i remember having a conversation one time with someone who was talking about the dozens and like mama jokes in particular. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this, this, it was, uh, it's actually it was a white woman and she was trying to put it through the lens of misogyny. It's like, Oh, you know, little black boys, they tell these mama jokes because they're misogynistic and they hate women. It's like, no, like you, <laughs> you couldn't be any more off and wrong. And she was like, really adamant and I just had to like it was a it was a fight that I had to pick 
because it was like you work around kids and you're going to be harmful to these kids. What you need to understand about the black lived experiences. One, we started playing at dozens during slavery when we were being sold off, we were being auctioned off by right. the lot. And it's like, so you know that you're about to be sold and the people you're there at the slave auction with, you probably aren't going to ever see these people ever again. Um, a, good, a good lot of them. And so to make ease of this like completely horrific situation, they started playing this game called the dozens, which yep. is they would make fun of folks who had quote unquote defects because they would go into batch of black people, not cattle, actual human beings that would be sold by the dozen because they had some type of defect. So, you know, if you had like a big nose and people start making fun of your big nose or whatever it may be. And then that later evolved into that, that culture evolved into mama jokes because the most important thing in a black kid's life is their mama. Yep. It's not their daddy. It's, it's their mama. And so when you want to get on someone's skin, you talk about their mama <laughs> to see if they can handle it without losing it. <laughs> right. So, yeah. so having to uh, help people see like how black culture comes to life. And so don't just judge the symptoms of it. And this, this teacher, Miss Nagasaki, like if she's out there, if she is listening, she is still alive. Like what she did was so um, profound, you know, and beneficial to your life. And I don't think it's no coincidence that she lived through having to go to the internment camps. And mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like having to, that's a whole other part, which is so crazy that happened in California, like California is one of the hotspots, if not like one of the only, I don't know if it's the only place where internment camps happen, but I know it's one of the places where some of the biggest ones yeah, happen absolutely, in, absolutely. in the yep. United States. It's like, that's so wild. Like yeah. in our lifetime, the, the adults who helped raise us were rounded up and put, the Japanese folks were put in internment camps. Yep. Which is, so crazy that that's a part of the American story that just doesn't get talked about, which is, you know, you lump that in with all the stuff that, you know, folks, like, that people don't know about how black people have been treated this whole time. And now there's this mass awakening that's happening. But I think it's dope that Miss Nagasaki was able to to see you and to be able to uh, reach in and kind of give you what you needed to kind of redirect your energy in a, in a more constructive way and like how how did how did um how did that start to manifest in you because i know for me it was like i competed like against like i wanted grades and i love playing sports like that's that's what i cared about yeah getting good grades and being that dude in any sport i play yep no so i same thing same thing right and so so for me it was it was you know, me understanding that, like, hey, I, I, if I, if I follow my energy and I, I focus on this, and this becomes a focus point for me, I can actually do it. Uh, and, and, and once I, you know, once I got the first taste of it, it was, all right, well, yeah, okay, I, I, I may not, I may not live over by you. I may not have a dad. I, I, my mother doesn't drive a Mercedes, but you know, from this point on. Um, I, I took it personally to try to outperform um, everyone in any measurable way that I could. So athletics, soccer, baseball, whatever. Like, I had to 
always be the best player, the best player on the field. Yeah. I remember I, we, I, would, I, would, I would lose a soccer game. I'd get in the car crying, and my mom would tell me, she, Kevin, like, losing is part of the game. And I remember all the time I said, I don't, mom, I don't understand why I have to lose. I always thought I was that good. <laughs> I, I remember telling her, like, mom, I don't understand why I have to lose. Like, I, I truly think, and, right. you know, whatever. But, uh, yeah, I get but it. It, it, it rolled over academics, too, right? Like, I, I don't understand why I should get anything other than the top grade. Yep. I, I clearly have it within me. And, and, and if you guys want to compete, you better get the top grade, too, because that's what I'm going for. Right, and, and yeah. so that, that 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 energy, that energy, you know, that what I what I spoke about earlier is that negative energy. It flipped and became positive momentum that I used to drive me. Yep. Yeah. No, I, I think so. Like the intensity of how we grow up, not all, disproportionately how Black folks grow up. We grow up in this really intense environment, and if you can take that intensity and that negative energy and like you can harness it exactly. and turn and turn it into a, a fuel source bruh possibilities like, are endless possibilities yeah. are endless it's, it's, especially when you get it under control because i think i think the early manifestation of it was like okay now i'm never going to lose like mom why do i have to lose like right everyone else needs to can lose but not me like right. that's that's like the first stage of it but once you get it under control and then it just becomes a, a source. But I can leave you out there, man. Like, I, I, I get that competitive vibe. Like, I, I remember at this racist high school. <laughs> my high school basketball coach was racist. He just was. And, um, yeah, I go, whatever. It just is what it is. Um, and I remember he wanted to give my, on the JV basketball squad, he wanted to give my starting point guard position to someone else. And he started having me go out there. We were doing three on three drills. And he would put me with, like, the weakest squad. And he would put this other dude with, like, the best players, trying to set it up so this dude can ball out and win. I took that. I took it so personally. And I was, like, I was a dog. Like, I just was. I had that competitive dog in me. And dude could not score a bucket because I took it so personally. And what the coach didn't understand was where I was from. And how intense my experience was. Yep. And how much how much energy I could funnel into this competition. And the dude that he put in front of me that he wanted to be the starter, he just wasn't cut from the same cloth. Right. Exactly. I mean, I mean do, do quit basketball. How much energy I can funnel into it and the length yeah. that I will go. <laughs> Bruh. <laughs> Bruh. I was like, you will not score a bucket. What I'm willing to sacrifice to Make sure that I don't lose. Yep. Uh, so yeah, yeah, and uh, that's it. There's 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 been this other theme through this conversation though that's popped up a few times um, that could push people in two directions. And knowing where you're at, it clearly, you know, became one of those things that you were able to harness to push you in uh, the direction where you're now you know, the VP of procurement and working for one of the largest um, construction companies in the world. But it's this theme of, you know, your dad choosing to not be in you all's life. Like how, how did that show up for you in terms of, uh, you know, a chip on your shoulder? Cause I, I mean, 
I can imagine you have one. I know I had I had a chip on my shoulder. My dad bounced and I actually was left with his name, which was this weird thing to deal with. Like, like my name is a Nefri, but all my family is like just, you know, black folks from Arkansas. And everyone in the hood name is, you know, my homeboy Jerry, my homeboy Damu, mm-hmm. you know, my Mexican homeboy, Filiberto, you know, and then I've got this name, a Nefri. Yeah. And it, it I had a I had a perpetual chip on my shoulder because a nephew came from this dude who left us. Um so how how did that show up for you, if at all? No, it it, def, it definitely it definitely showed up for me. Um you know, I was I was I was keenly from a very young age, keenly aware that you know, he wasn't around. Uh and I was also keenly aware of why he wasn't around, right? Just he has made a decision not to be part of my life. I never understood it. Uh, I, I still don't understand it. You know, I, I tell Stacey that all the time. Like, I don't understand how a parent can choose not to be part of a kid's life. I just, it's beyond, like, what, you know, my brain can comprehend. Um, but, uh, you know, honest, honestly, that's it. A lot of times it, it angered me. It angered me. Um, I, yeah, I, I just couldn't understand. I, I did not understand why he didn't want to be a part of my life. I didn't understand. I didn't understand why he was making my mom raise a young black male in Inglewood all by herself. Right. Like I, I just, I just, I couldn't understand any of that, and, and even to this day. Um, and, and, and quick story, quick story, um, not to get off topic, but I just had a stepbrother from my, my father's side of the family. Um, and so I'm in, I'm in the 11th grade at this point. Um, we don't live in Inglewood anymore. We move out to the suburbs and, and my stepbrother's getting married. So my mom and I, we show up at the wedding. I hadn't seen or talked to my, my father since I was three or four years old. Maybe hadn't seen or talked to him, so we're sitting in the we're sitting in the chapel. We're early. My mom is in you know in the aisle seat, and I'm one seat over. This man comes walking down the aisle. You know, I, I quickly recognize my father. Quickly, um, and he rec- he sees me. He recognizes me. So he's walking down the aisle, getting stuff set up, and I stand up, put my hand out to shake his hand, and he puts his hand out, shows me the palm of his hand. And says, just saying hello, just saying hello. Wouldn't shake my hand. Mm. <laughs> now, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm 17 years old at this point, you know. Bruh. I'm pushing 200 pounds. Right. Um, you know, been wrestling for a few years, done some, right. you know, judo. Like, so I'm like, this. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, you did <laughs> it. Like, you, you don't understand how much. Anger and frustration you've caused me, and uh, you you really want to do this now? Uh, yeah. And you know, afterwards, at, after the wedding, he he came up to me. And he he had the nerve to ask me where have I been and why haven't I kept in touch? Uh. 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 And, and I, you know, I told him I said, look, you left when I was uh, four years old. You chose not to be a part of my life. Um, once I was old enough to pick up a phone and call you or to write you a letter and figure out how to get in touch with you, I didn't care to. 
Mm. I told that to his face. Keep it a buck. So yeah, that's. I mean, that's a that's a that's a powerful story. Like I got my own version of it, um, fortunately or unfortunately. But I do think that the positive side of you know, like me being the youngest of three boys, and you know, I'm I'm quite like I'm impressed by my brothers. You know, I think I just couldn't understand why you would not want to be around the three of us. But the interesting thing that your brothers, yeah, you, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all good. We know what it is. But the the interesting thing about um, being the youngest is, you know, parents get they get they get tired. Mm-hmm. Um, so my mom, you know, was, was a single mom, even though a massive extended family. But I got to see a different side of her, you know. Um, I got to see her kind of running on, on parental fumes, so to speak, you know, loved me, nurtured me, gave me, you know, more than, I mean, if you look at just where I'm at in, in my life and all three of our sons, like we're just three, three boys who grew up, you know, in this really rough environment who, um, once Anthony completes, uh, school this fall, all three of her boys will have master's degrees. Like she did an amazing job, but she also, she definitely was tired. You know, you, you know, like the first kid gets like the, the bronze shoes and yeah. there's like a picture of every single day of their life. And then you get to the youngest. She's like, I don't, I don't even remember how old you were right there. You know what I mean? <laughs> like they, you may have a picture. You may not like, you just kind of, you're around with the tribe. It's kind of is what it is. And one of the things I got to see though, as I, as it was important as I was going through, you know, junior high and high school and like dating and like relating to girls is also got to see and understand like my mom's like the impact of how men show up in women's lives. And so I internalized my mom's own story in a way that inspired me to try and show up in women's lives differently. Yep. Like that, that's how I harnessed like all of that anger from you know, my dad leaving us mm-hmm. and, and, and seeing how it impacted my mom. Like, why would you do this to her and leave her with this responsibility to raise us in this neighborhood that's chaotic and she ain't got no money, she ain't got no protection. Like, so then it, it inspired me to move through this world in a very different way. Yeah, and same here. It's, it's completely, uh, you know, the experience or lack of experience that I had with my father um, has definitely shaped me um, and um, in terms of me being a parent and how I choose to interact with my children, because I can have it, right? So I, you know, I'm like, you know, I try to give them 3,000% because I, right. you know, I'm, I just, I didn't have it, right? So it's, um, it, it's definitely, it, it showed me what I, you know, it's the prime example of what I don't want to be as a parent. Right. Yeah, keep it, keep it a buck. So, as I listen through this, like these formative years, there's the intensity of being in Inglewood. Mm-hmm. There's the intensity of then going to school in Westchester mm-hmm. and, you know, always been made to feel like other or different. Then there's this intensity of, you know, pops bouncing when you're four, all of that, you know, your mom builds this community around you. 
and helps you figure out how to harness this energy. And there's right. some folks who help. There's your Uncle Sherman, who you referenced. There's other um, individuals in, in your mom's uh, community and like family and chosen family that she helps put around you. There's Miss Nagasaki who comes in to yep. help help you um, figure out how to be less of a knucklehead. Um, <laughs> and then I know you, I know you mentioned you know before we hop off into like your your, your college experience, like your mom moved you guys out to the suburbs. Yes. Um, when when did that happen exactly? Right before high school. Um, so we moved out there right before I started high school. Uh, so I, I forget the year, but 95, 96, maybe? Yeah. 95, 96, somewhere around there. Um, right before I started high school. 95, probably. Um, yeah. Right before I started high school. Um, and yeah, we, so we moved, out, we moved out to Palmdale, which is, I don't know, hour 15, hour and a half, hour 15 north. East of Los Angeles, yeah. Um, and man, I hated it <laughs> initially. <laughs> yeah, I hated it because yeah, I, I was where we lived was like as LA as LA can get. Right, right, right like right in the middle of Los Angeles, and then now I'm like, like what? What is this out here? I'm like we had tumbleweeds. I'm like. <laughs> like, it's like tumbleweeds and Joshua trees, like right. That, that's that's there could be anything less LA, right? Right. I'm like, what is this? Right. Um, but it, it was it was totally right move. Like she 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 did it because she didn't want me being in Inglewood um, during those those high school years. Um, and so yeah, she picked up, moved to Palmdale. Um. You know, initially I, I hated Palmdale, but again, it was the right move. I ended up making some uh, phenomenal connections, some great friends, um, who uh, you know, I, and you know them, yeah. uh, right? But uh, you know, make some great friends who continue to have a positive impact on my life, and you know, surrounded myself with the right group of people, um, and it, it really just kind of kept that momentum and just kind of lit a fire into it right just um kept on yeah no i mean i think i think that's that was a brilliant that's a brilliant move because you know to to kind of close the la chapter you know on this on this kind of narrative it's like but you know mid 80s to mid 90s you don't even have to be gang affiliated like drama will find you it'll, it'll find you like it just there is there is no escaping it. Right. So your your options are to like my mom, she just kept us in sports year round. Right. You know, and but even then and like, you know, we, we got this stuff in high school. It's like athletes. It's just there's just a certain level of just intensity and drama that was everywhere you went, whether it was the police messing with you, whether it was people, you know, just from other hoods thinking it's an issue. People going to other high school, just like it was just like Funk and drama was just like in the air, but caught, you, caught wearing the wrong color on the wrong block, right? And then like literally one, one block over, we're in the wrong color, right? And then it's it's on. And if you get the if it if it just ends up being a fight, you lucky. You right. know what I mean? Like yeah, you know because you could you could you know the, the scrapes gonna heal from that. But so you got your mom makes this move, gets you out to Palmdale. You go through your high school years, um, you build some great friendships and continue this momentum and w- 
what was that like a launching pad for you? Like, where, where did you go off to after, after high school? So after high school, um, went to college at West Point. So picked up and uh, picked up and moved all the way across the country to uh, I don't know if quite upstate, but you know it's probably about an hour and a half, two hours uh, north of New York. Um, picked up. Everyone, every, every, all my friends, my family were like, "You're you're doing what? You're going." You're going where? <laughs> right. Why are you doing that? <laughs> it, it, I, you know, it wasn't the popular decision, but that I wasn't trying to make the popular decision. Right. So, so you were you were from you were from the heart of LA to like tumbleweeds and Joshua trees, and then you hop out to upstate New York at West Point, dealing with snow and all of what came with that. Like, what yeah. what motive? What? Why did you make the decision to go to West Point over? Uh, if you if you were able to get to West Point, you could have gotten into pretty much any other school that you wanted to. So why West Point? Um, you know, honestly, at the end of the day, because at the time I perceived it to be the hardest. Mm. That, that was it. Mm. I want like, again. I had that you know I had that fire in me to 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 want to be the yep. to, to want to be the best. You know that I spoke about earlier. And so, you know, if I'm like, well, if I want to be the best, then I want the hardest experience and I want to compete against the best. And that's, right. that's what it was. I said, I, I, I want a hard experience. I want this. Like, I want to go see what this is all about. If it's so hard, then let's see. That, that's right. what drove me there. Right. And so, you know, you, how would you describe your, your four years at West Point? Like, what did, what did that experience that, that throwing yourself into that challenge, like, what did that do for you? In your development, um, West Point was yeah. I, I can't I can't downplay by any means the, the impact that that the West Point um, has played on my life. Um, you know, when when you're talking when you're talking leadership, um, you know, West Point is at least they consider they consider itself, but I think by by me it's considered the kind of premier leadership institution in the world. Uh, and so I was, you know, I was always comfortable with, t- and had, had in several instances taken on leadership roles through sports or other organizations and Jack and Jill, this, that, and the other. Um, but then Westport just takes to a whole new level, right? It's, mm. it's really like it's focused on, on leadership and, you know, doing the right thing, doing the right thing when no one's looking. Um, you know, there's the, the whole academic aspect of it. Um, and, and so it becomes West Point was um, it wasn't always fun. I will say that West yeah. Point was not always fun. There were days where I'm just, you know I was just like, man, this this place is something else. <laughs> <laughs> there were days where I was like this place is something else, and there were other days where I was like, you know, this is a pretty special place. Um, but it, it really, you know taught me and helped refine um, you know, my, my leadership skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the thing about one, one of the keys to, to West Point is, is understanding, um, so being able to deal with stress, um, but then also time management. That's a, that's a huge key at West Point. 
because they purposely give you more than you have time to, you know, to deal with. Mm. Um, they they give you more than you can handle. They own on purpose. Um, Yeah. And then, and then not only that, then they start to restrict your time that you, you have to do the certain tasks that you've been tasked with doing. Um, and, and so it's like, okay, well, how are you going to handle the stress of all this? Um, and then how are you going to choose to manage your time? Mm-hmm. And, and those are the kind of the two big things that you've got to figure out at West Point. Otherwise, it becomes a miserable experience. It becomes right. a miserable experience. Right. It's pre- I mean, pressure bursts pipes, right? And right. so if you are able to handle that pressure, well, if you can't handle that pressure, then yeah, it becomes miserable. But if you do, then you, you become a West Point grad. Right. And, and you witness it all over the place. Or, you know, <laughs> you witness it all over the place all the time. It, uh, sounds like there's a, it sounds like there's a story there. Like, is there a story that you can actually share for public consumption? Because it sounds like there, there are some things you witness from other cadets in your time there, pressure bursting pipes. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> You know, not, not to give a, a specific story, but high level. West Point, they, they tell you where you need to be. So you need to be standing on this X at 7 a.m. And here's the, the uniform you need to, you, you, you ought to be wearing. And here are the 10 different things you need to know when you show up to this X. And people just don't get that right. <laughs> and, and I'm like, Look, guys, they laid it all out for you. Like, just make sure you're standing on that X at 7 a.m. You know these 10 things and make sure you're in the right uniform and it looks good. And, and for whatever reason, people just wouldn't get it right. And, and, and once, once that happens, like, the wheels fall, start to fall off the wagon, right. right? Because, you know, there's roughly 1,100 of us in a thousand, 1,100 of us in a class. Um, and, you know, once they start to figure out who isn't getting it right, they, you know, the upper, I say they, the upperclassmen, uh, so the sophomore, juniors, and seniors, then choose, they know who to focus their time on. Right. And when they focus their time on you, it consumes all of your time. And that's less time that you have to focus on academics. That's less time you have to focus on your physical fitness. That's less time you have to focus on other things that you have to get done. Hmm. And then, and like I said, you, once your time starts, you know, once they start consuming the little bit of time that you do have, um, then, you know, you, another plate drops over here and then you're trying to right. pick that plate and, and right. that's when the hysteria starts and, you know, the stuff that you, you've seen, probably seen in movies or whatnot. And, <laughs> you know, people just, <laughs> this, you know, their experiences becomes miserable. Right. All right, so I, I, I'm not I'm not gonna press the line on that, but uh, <laughs> that, that that'll be for like off mic, you know. Next time we get together, yeah, 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 the, yeah. We... The, the, crack, the crack of brew. I right. definitely want to want to get because I I can I I know how your mind works, and there are two to three stories in particular you're thinking about right now. So we'll we'll, we'll get to those at another time. But yeah. so you you come through, you know, what's widely considered the best leadership institution in the world, or at least you know in certain circles is considered that, and um, I know that you, you go off and you actually serve in the military. And I, I think it's, I, I personally find it uh, gratuitous and just tacky to ask people about, you know, salacious details of their time while they're serving. So we're not going to get into that. 
But given the context of what's going on right now in this mass awakening in our society, where we're basically trying to make sure that the Constitution is applied equally to all people in America, um, how, how does it feel for you right now to be, be witnessing like this, this mass awakening in our society and in particular, you know, this black lives matter movement and everyone saying like, you know what? America has been racist for 400 years. We need to right this wrong. We, we have not, you know, um, addressed this. And I, how does that feel for you being uh, a veteran and also being a black man. Yeah, wow. Um, so, you know, addressing the, the, the being a black veteran piece, right? So, you know, that kind of clearly points to the kneeling and the stance that, Cal- that Kaepernick took. Um, and I, I, I will say that Personally, I don't know if that idea would have popped in my head to do it, but I always understood what he was doing and why he was doing it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and people have to realize that he actually got that idea from a veteran. Okay. And people also need to, and so, you know, there's this, this, this narrative that's being created that, well, it's, it's disrespectful to the flag. Well, you know what? When, when we're deployed and, and we lose a comrade, we often kneel to show yeah. respect to that comrade. So is kneeling actually a disrespectful thing? I, I get it. People stand and put their heart on the flag, but the act of kneeling itself isn't all that disrespectful, right? Right. So that's, that's one piece of it. Um, but, you know, then... There was this 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 false narrative created that to distract attention from you know what he was actually trying to bring attention to that guys or everyone right black people within this country are being you know are being killed and mistreated at a disproportionate rate. By police, and and you know what? There's there's a lot of data that validates it, right? And it became this narrative that well, he's disrespecting the flag, so we're not even going to talk about it, right? Um, and I, I I it it infuriated me. I hated it uh, because you you look at it and it's like man, black people have had a Black people have had a, a certain experience within this country for the past 400 years. Um, and, and people have been, you know, we, not people, we have been trying to, to speak up and, and, and say things and, you know, get the attention of America so that our experience can be similar to our white counterparts' experience. Right. It's been ignored. Over and over and over again, right? And, yeah. and that's why you, that's why you see things like the Rodney King riots, yeah, right. When when people 
feel as though that, like, look, I've, I've said it over and over again peacefully. Um, I've tried to get your attention and, and no one's listening. Well, I'm going to get your attention now because I'm just going to break everything. Right. right. I, I don't agree with it. I don't like it. But I understand. Yep. Uh, I understand. And, and so, uh, you know, from a veteran, from a, a, a black veteran, I never saw it as, as disrespectful. Um, I never bought into the idea that, hey, what Colin Kaepernick was or what Cap was doing was, was disrespectful to the flag, it was disrespectful to the, to the U.S., it was, it was disrespectful to veterans. I, I never bought into that, uh, to that idea. Um, I, yeah. I thought I thought it was actually the exact opposite, right? So uh, you you ask us to do something peacefully, like that's actually what he was doing. He was peacefully protesting, right? And, right, and, right, right. And, 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 and what happens? And what happens? Right? A false narrative gets created to distract attention from it. Well, well come on, <laughs> right? And I think that's I think it's an important point in terms of folks folks just wanting to create this false narrative and get off the topic, this unpleasant topic, which has now bubbled over where right. now it's like, look, everybody got to address it because, you know, we got protests all across the country. I mean, right. you got, you got parts of Seattle where folks have taken over a part of the city and you right. got Minneapolis, you got buildings on fire everywhere. I mean, here in Oakland, they just went, went, uh, they went ham in certain places. Right. Um, and it's just, it's all across the country. It's not, one area because people are fed up and frustrated. And I saw this thing that was like the basically the game is always to not talk, talk about the topic. Like that's what, that's what has been the past 400 years. And, it, and in particular around the Kaepernick thing more recently, it's like, we just don't want to talk about it. So when Kaepernick kneels, that's not the right time or the right way. When, you know, Kobe and LeBron, I think LeBron did it first, but it doesn't matter who did it first. When all the NBA players were rocking the I Can't Breathe shirts. Breathe shirts, yep. That, that wasn't the right time. When right, actors, it became shut up and dribble, right? Like, right, come on. <laughs> right, exactly. What? Exactly. When, when actors win an Academy Award, you know, that wasn't – and they're, they're giving their, their acceptance speech, that wasn't the right time. Or when a musician wins a grant. Like, all of these different ways in which people protest or bring attention to it, it's like, I, I don't disagree with your point, but I'm not going to talk about your point I'm just going to talk about the way in which you're bringing your point up, whatever right. the method is. And that's, yeah. that's I just, came here to watch the Grammys. Game. I didn't come here to hear this. Right. And that's just game. So like what, what people what, have to, I'm yeah, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Yeah. No, what, what, what people have to realize is that if we want to make progress, if we want to make true progress, we have to go through a, a definitive stage where we are all very uncomfortable because we, we have to deal with the reality of the situation. And the reality of the situation is very is going to get very uncomfortable for people, right? Because when you, when you when you peel back the onion and, and you 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 look at what's been occurring and the experiences that some people have had within this country, it's unsettling. And you're like, wait, what? What has been occurring? Right. You you know, like George Floyd. Like, wait, that actually happened to someone? Yes, and you know, it's, it's been happening. It's yes. been happening. Like, God, I I hate that 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 happened to him. You know, I hate that another black man had to die. But for once, we got the totality of an event captured on camera. Right. Right. So you couldn't create this narrative of, oh, well, what happened before that? Right. What, what, else, what, 
else occurred that led up to this? Like, we got the totality of an event caught on camera. That those cops had that had their neck on that man or had their knees on that man for almost nine minutes. Yep. There's nothing you can say to that. But mm-hmm. but Neff, this has been this this has been occurring. Oh, this, absolutely. This has been this has been the experience for for people within America for years. Like you know, NWA doesn't make a phone call fuck the police for no reason. Absolutely. Like, right, and and it becomes like a smash hit all across the country with no radio play. Right, like stop it, B. That they made that song for a reason. Yeah, no. And, and, and the other thing's a point. Like that's just you know the example popping in, but there there are things that, that you could point to that you know say the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it ultimately boils down to my my two cents on it is. Black people have fought and died in every single war that this country's had, including the Revolutionary War. Yep. And I don't know if it's actually true, but I know what's stated in the history books uh, was that Crispus Attucks, I think it was, was the first person to die in the Revolutionary War. That was the first shot fired, and it mm-hmm. sparked off, and then, boom, man, that was a black man. And we have fought and died in every single war to uphold and defend the Constitution before the Constitution even existed. And then once it was uh, ratified to defend and protect it, and then we'd come back home from those wars and not even have uh, equal protection under the law. And I, I think that ugly truth, that hypocrisy, has been too uncomfortable um, for a lot of people in our society, and there's still a large chunk of our society. But I think the hopeful, beautiful thing that we're seeing right now is it's not just black people who are like. It's time. Like, we are we are willing to be uncomfortable. We're willing to look at this, and we need to we need to fix and right this wrong. And right. you know, uh, I've I've never seen anything like it. No, uh, no, neither have I. And when I talk to folks from the older generations who were you know around and living through the '60s, and maybe even saw some of the other um, struggles in different parts of the country, they're like, "This is unique. This yep. is we we have never had this level of." mass awakening outside of the black community around the racial inequities that are experienced and in, inside the black community and saying, we want to help be a part of the solution. Right. So yeah, appreciate, appreciate you being willing to, to share your perspective though, as, as a, as someone who is uh, taking an oath to defend this constitution and then has actually gone out and um, done that work literally on the front lines and, mm-hmm. um, I just actually have to interject one quick story. I'm not going to get into the messy details, but here's, here's, here's the peak. Here's the peak hypocrisy. You and I actually, one time we were, we were in a city and I won't even say where, but we were in a city and we actually ended up interacting with, uh, uh, this dude who was a racist and he made a snide comment to you about, uh, uh, your military service, and you're like, you know, you you let them know. It's like, well, actually, you know, I was not only was I an officer in the military, I went to West Point. And he was like, oh, but but you weren't deployed. <laughs> and me knowing your knowing your story, you know, you took the high road and you didn't get into you know the back and forth with him. It's like, dude, you're just being an idiot. And the situation got squashed, you know, before, you know, got escalated. Um, right, right. But um, 
I found that to be so deep, just sitting there watching and, you know, being being ready for whatever's going to happen. I have that piece going on in my brain, too. Like, you really don't want this conflict. But the other part of me was, like, it was an interesting thing to see racism at its finest. Mm-hmm. You know, because here you are, you're a black man who, I know how you lived your life. You went on to West Point, and then after West Point, you went and served. And I know that you served. I know that a good amount of the details of your your service and you definitely were deployed. Um, and then you come back and you're a Michigan man, you get your MBA, you're doing these things. And here's this dude. All he sees is a black dude. He, he, he's, he's interested in having this confrontational interaction and he's trying to position himself in this position of su- superiority with respect to you. And mm-hmm. he, he didn't know he went barking up the wrong tree. But I guess I, I will never... I will never forget that moment because I was like, this is racism at its finest. Like he never called you the N-word, but he clearly was looking to try and position himself in a position of superiority. And he actually was your subordinate in every way. Like in the military, he had, he had not rate, he did not, he did not rise to the same rank that you had risen yeah. to. Yeah. But he felt he didn't need to respect that. So, anyways, that's a that's a great synopsis of how racism manifests itself in our society in particular, how it manifests itself with respect to black veterans. Right. And, 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 and here really quick on the kind of not complete flip, but, you know, to add to that, you know, there are countless examples that, that I can, I can point to where someone doesn't know me and they treat me a certain way for, for whatever reason. Um, race may be a contributing factor because Nine times out of ten, when you know these these when these instances occur, the person doesn't doesn't look like me. And and you know, sometimes whatever, nothing happens. But sometimes you know, like there actually becomes dialogue between myself and the person, and, and we engage in dialogue. And sometimes it'll come out through dialogue that, yeah, I went to West Point and I served you know, served in the army, and the second they learn that it's like their whole demeanor about me changes. It's like, right. Why? Why? Like, why, why can't you just accept me for who I am? Why does it take this? You know, why, why does it take West point for you to, 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 to have to, to, you know, kind of see me on an equal level. Right. And if you if you actually unravel, if you keep pulling at that thread, it gets it gets ugly. And I think that's the reason why everyone always wanted to avoid the Kaepernick conversation, because no one wanted to pull at that thread. Because you start pulling back the why, but then why? Because why leads to more why until you get down to just like the root of it. And the root of it is, we have never even remotely been treated with any form of equality. We haven't. And that's a that's a that's an ugly thing to acknowledge and, and admit when you look at not only have we not been treated remotely equal, we've been brutalized and it's 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 pervasive and systemic. So and it becomes like I said before, it becomes a very uncomfortable conversation, but you have to have you have to go through this period mm-hmm. where where you're uncomfortable and, and, and you know face the, the hard realities um, in order to make progress. 
Yep. South Africa's done it. Germany's done it. Yep. And it feels like we're in that season where we're finally going to do it so we can go ahead and grow up as a country and, and you know, take this this document. Like, I often – I remember even when I was, like, you know, I was, there were just folks who were not really happy with me, you know, in undergrad when I was, you know, hanging out with the homies in the Black Student Union. And I was like, if you read the Constitution, the words on the paper are amazing. Like, yes. they are. Yes. Um, and they would just be so upset. Like, you know, don't give it, like, you know, some of them, like, don't give it, you know, that much credit, you know, because they were hypocrites. And I get why they were coming from where they were coming from. It's like, you know, the Constitution almost doesn't mean anything for black people because none of those rights really pertain to us. But when you look at the long arc, the Constitution is the saving grace. It's, it's the only thing that gives this country a shot. Yep. And the conversation that we're having now in mass is about extending, you know, those words that were captured in this document. Extending to everyone. To everyone in practice. And it's, yep. it's an interesting start. We're nowhere near there. There's so much work that needs to be done. But you have to at least address the elephant in the room and have these unpleasant conversations and then start picking at that, that yarn, like right. asking, asking why, you know, someone can't see you as an equal until they find out you went to West Point. Or, uh, you know, for me, the way it shows up in my life, when people find out that I'm a Michigan NBA. Right, right. Um, they're like, oh. oh. Yeah, same thing, same thing, yeah. I get that, too. Yeah. With, I, I use the West Point example because we were talking about West Point, but same thing. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... Man, I appreciate you, you taking time to get on here and share, share your story. Before I, I let you uh, get back to uh, running around with them twin boys who I know are going to have your hands full, <laughs> uh, I, have, uh, I, have, I have a few, few questions um, I got I to uh, get you to answer for us. And so um, talking about all the intensity that you had that you had to learn to harness I think that is a that is a common thing for black men, and 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 quite honestly, too many of us don't learn to harness it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we end up losing it because it's, it's stressful and it's hard to like walk in our shoes, and so. But it's important that we learn too, and so to that end, is there a story that you could share from your from your life, uh, for your from your career, whether like any point in time in your life where um, someone went low? Uh, but you decided to go high. You decided to take the high road, and in doing so, um, it turned out to be in your best interest. Yeah, um, sure. So I was, I was. One point was giving a, and not with my my current employer, but one point was giving a, a presentation to uh, some folks that were um, much much more senior than me, and, and I gave the presentation. Everything went well. And at the end of the presentation, um, one of the one of the gentlemen who was in the room, um, a Caucasian male, came up to me and said, you actually speak good English. Mm. Mm. Not not he didn't say you speak good English. He said, you actually speak good English as if Mm. his expectation was something different. Right. And as if there was zero regard for <laughs> him actually saying it to you. Right. 
straight face, like didn't. And and so, what I wanted to do was I I wanted to respond in a way that he thought that I was initially going to speak. I'll, I'll just say that. Right? So I, right. I I wanted to respond. To that. <laughs> you go hit it up with that Inglewood lingo. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't obviously. I I, I didn't do that. Uh, yeah, you know, I I I, I brushed it off, and um, you know, I, I talked to some 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 other folks, and uh, um, you know, it, for me, it was a good thing that that I I didn't respond the way I did, um, or not the way that I did. I didn't respond the way that uh, you know, my initial gut reaction, uh, because it would have. You know, number one, it, it would have it would have fed into his, uh, you know, his his thought process, um, but then it just wouldn't have been good for you know me professionally, and it's just it, so. Um, I'm yeah. glad I'm glad that I responded the way that I did, but you know, my my gut reaction was you know, a 180 from that. Right, right. I mean, and, and that's where you have to, you know, I would. I, what I say is you got to be about the business of being about your business. Right. Right. And so yep, yep. If, if, if your objective is, you know, I'm, I'm, go, I'm building this career and this life and I'm trying to be this provider for my family in this particular way. And this person comes out of left field and says something disrespectful. I'm not then just going to flip over the table of my life in order so I can cuss this dude out and right. feel good for the next, you know, two minutes. Right. And yeah, I, I respect it. Um, next, next question I have for you is, if you were to describe your journey in one word, what would it be? <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to be difficult with you, Neff, and I'm going to give you two. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, I, I would say Fulfilling, uh, yet incomplete. Hmm. Hmm. So say say more about that because there, I know that that takes me to a very clear place, but I want to make sure that I get what you're trying to communicate about that. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I I'll just be blunt with you. I'm 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 proud of what I have become. Um, you know, especially especially. It, 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 I, I trust me. I don't. I don't take all credit for it. I take very little credit for it. Um, but I'm, I'm proud of like where I am in my life. Um, and what I, what I have been able to accomplish. Um, you know what I've been able to do. Um, you know my involvement in the community. What I've been able to help others accomplish. Um, you know I, I'm, I'm proud of that. But there's still a lot more. There's still a lot more to, to do. A lot more work to do. Um, you, know, you look at look at what's going on in America right now. Right there's. Yep. There's a lot more, and so when I say, you know, it there, there's a lot more work to do, and I'm, I'm not talking about me personally in terms of, of of you know my career and what I want to be within my career. That's not what I'm speaking to. Um, I'm, I'm I'm talking about the work that's still to be done out in society. Yeah, that's that's real, and it's 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 important to be able to. Um, at moments, give yourself a hot minute to smell the roses, but you ain't you ain't done. You know no. what I mean? Like there's there's still more work 
to be done. And I think, right. I, I think it's beautiful that you actually have that perspective because what ends up happening is some people just tap out. They're like, look, I'm in this place. I'm making this money. And you know what? I'm just going to just indulge myself in the, the, the things that I have for me as an individual. And I'm not going to care about what's happening in the rest of our society. In particular, I'm not going to care about what's happening with black folks who haven't made it yet, who are still getting stepped on. Like I somehow have gotten out of, you know, that, like the hood. But the thing you find out, like no matter where you go, there you are. Like this, there was the Harvard professor, you know, he got yeah. arrested by the police in his own house. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It's like, and that, that's just not one story. What's what's the, 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 bird, the, bird, the bird watcher in New York? Right. Was, right. A, was a Harvard graduate. The Harvard, bird watcher in New York was a Harvard graduate. Doing the most like bougie, like, you know, upscale thing ever, bird watching in Central right. Park. Like, he's and, doing what? But Right. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, all all it took was, you know, Amy Cooper to be like to weaponize race. Right. To weaponize I'm call, race. I'm gonna call nine one one and and say an African American man is threatening my life. And boom. His whole existence was like hanging in a balance. Had, had, that, had that not been on tape and the police actually showed up, she could have forever changed the trajectory of his life. Absolutely. That's, that's sad. Yeah, absolutely. So, so for, fulfilling but incomplete. Um, two more questions. Uh, first of which, you, what's your personal definition of success? It doesn't need to apply to anyone else, but your definition, how, how, and how does, you know, uh, I guess, how do you manage your life? What are you working towards? Yeah. So, I mean, at, at the end of the day, now, if I've, I've always said that, you know, when I'm, when I'm dead and gone, I want to be remembered as a, as a good, he was a, a great father, great husband, and great son. Mm. Um, you know, in, in that order. And, and so, you know, for me, Success for me, Neff, would be, um, you know, raising these, these, these two boys um, to sort of one that they're, they're, they're happy, um, contributing members of society, um, but that they also, you know, like I said, you know, fulfilling yet incomplete, that they also get that, that, that sense of, of incompleteness um, and mm. that they, you know, they they get, they understand the need to, to help the community, to give back, to make things better or to leave this world in a better place than, than what they, you know, they're living in it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, for me, I, I think that, you know, if, if I can instill the values in them um, that will help them to, to, to live that, that, that type of life. Um, you know, I'll, hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to look back and you know, I'll be able to look back and, and, and say, you know, well, well done. Uh, yeah. Indeed, man. That, that's, that's, that's really all that, you know, not to be cliche, but that's what it all boils down to. Not just saying it as a cliche, like, it's like how do we make things better for future generations? Right. And right. what? How do we take what previous generations gave us? This is the one thing that I, I find 
important for people to recognize is you need to not be self-indulgent. I, I think that prior to this mass awakening, I think all segments of our society have been the most self-indulgent they ever have been. And it's like, you didn't create this. You inherited this. So yes, be able to enjoy it, but you got to build upon this and make it better for everyone else around you as opposed to just taking. And so I think that's, um, with that outlook, I think I'm, I'm sure your boys are going to go on to do amazing things and you will be able to look back and say that you, you were successful. Um, and then, so the, the, the last question that I want to uh, get you to answer for us today is, it is, it is a, it is a hot oven to be a black man in this country. Always has been. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you have to do things like invent games like the dozens just to deal with the psychological pressure of what it takes to be black in this country. Um, but there's a lot of dope stuff that comes with being black as well. Yep. So what do you love the most about being a black man? You know, I'm just the culture. Hmm. The culture. Uh, you know, there's there's so much there's so much uniqueness and stuff that I, you know, when it comes to black culture, I look at it. I'm, I mean, it's it's all over America, from music to food to fashion. It's it's all over the place. Um, but it, 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 you know, ultimately the the the, the, the black culture that, that has created a lot of that. And so for me, it's it's the black culture, and, yeah. And and that's you know, for me, it's kind of it's kind of the center of it. Um, and you know, this it has several tenets to kind of break off of that. But um, yeah, it's, it's the black culture. Right? I I love. You know, I'm walking down the aisle of the supermarket, and yeah, you know, pass with the black man. Like we we acknowledge each other. Yeah. Right, we acknowledge it because we just it, it, eight times out of ten that happens. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it, it's it's no like it's you know I'm not speaking of like one-off instances. Like this eight out of ten times that happens just because we have we've had similar we're we're acknowledging we've had similar experiences and that we come from a, a you know this is the same culture. Yeah, um, man. And so yeah, it, it'd be the yeah. I I, do, I think it's impressive that no, no matter what we got, we will take it and make it fly. Right. Period. I mean, for me, hip-hop is one of the best examples of that. Like, we didn't have no instruments, so we took, like, the break beats of, you know, someone else's songs, we scratched it up, and then cats start rhyming over it, and now you look you look up, and it's the number one music genre in the world. In the yeah. world. <laughs> it's it's and we can just go on and on and on. You know, soul food. You start talking about apparel and fashion design, lingo, hip hop, um, surpass rock and roll, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is what it is. That's what's up, man. Well, I truly, deeply appreciate you uh, hopping on here, man. No, of course, uh, man. Thank you, thank yeah. you for having me. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure. Thanks for sharing your story, and it can you know help um, help other brothers out there that are trying to figure out their way and trying to figure out how to harness that anger and frustration and intensity that comes with um, macroaggressions and microaggressions. Because at the end of the day, 
you got to be about the business of being about your business. So appreciate you, man. And uh, I'll talk with you soon. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks again, man. All right. Peace. Take care.